Hello and welcome back to Book Therapy. This is Rob Cohen. It's been a while since we've talked. Uh, lots have been going on. Lots of reading, but um, basically nothing that I really desperately needed to talk about. I've been waiting for uh, Phil to be available so that we could talk about a book that he had recommended. And uh, eventually we'll get him back over here to record and we could talk about the book Mystic River by Dennis Lehane because that was a book that he had uh, recommended I read. He's been doing a lot of uh, reading of Michael Connolly books lately, so I said to him, give me a book. It was his free shot after 35 years of uh, us each reading our own books. I gave him a shot at giving me one book to, to read. He chose that, and I'm looking forward to chatting with him about it, provided I still remember it by the time he actually comes over. Did a lot of reading some of them truly, truly disappointing. I found myself lately picking up books by authors I'd never read before and getting about 100 pages in and really getting to the point where I have to decide if I want to keep reading or not. And then figuring, well, I, I'm here, I might as well finish it off. And then forcing myself to finish it, reading as fast as I can, and really just hoping it finishes quickly so I could get out of something new. <clears throat> One of the things, actually two of the things we're going to talk about tonight, the only two things we're going to talk about we're going to talk about a book I read called The Narrow Road to the Deep North by Richard Flanagan, which was the 2014 winner of the Man Booker Prize. And then we'll spend a little bit of time talking about the event that happens next week, Friday, February 13th, the release on Amazon Prime of all 13 episodes of the first season of the television series Bosch. So I have a little bit of an insight into that, got a little bit of a I don't know, sneak preview, so to speak. I'll tell you the whole story about that. But first, we're going to talk about The Narrow Road to the Deep North. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware. I certainly wasn't too aware within the last couple of years of what the Man Booker Prize is. Um, but it's an award given out to, I guess, the, the best book. I'm not even sure if it requires that it be fiction, but the best book um, that previous to 2014, I think it only was restricted to um, England, to to you know, the United Kingdom, and that I think 2014 they agreed to expand it into other um, other nations. I don't even know whether it requires that it be um, English-speaking. But anyways, that's about all I've, I know <clears throat> about the uh, Man Booker Prize. I know that Hilary Mantel, I think it is, won it a, a couple times for Bringing Up the Bodies in Wolf Hall, two books that I have absolutely no desire to read. And frankly, I'm not really one that's big on uh, books that win awards. I just don't think that they usually jibe well with me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of simple at times with respect to the books that I like to read. You've listened to me speak long enough to know that I really don't like to go too far afield on what my comfort level is. And typically these big book award winners or these big books that win awards, um, they're going places that I'm not usually, you know, accustomed to. Um, but somehow or other, the narrow road to the deep north seemed intriguing enough to me to pick up, and I figured that even though it was only 330 pages, it wasn't going to uh, be a very quick read. Um, it's broken up into, I think, three sections, and there's multiple, multiple chapters. It's like each section has something like 20 or 30 chapters. So you'd think that when it's broken down in that way, it's going to be a fairly quick read, um, but it was really anything but. So the concept for the book is that uh, the main character's name is Dorigo Evans, D-O-R-R-I-G-O, -R -R and he's Australian, and he's a Japanese POW working on the um, Burmese 
the Thai Burma Death Railway. So they're building a, a railroad, I guess, between Thailand and Burma. And so it's a story of uh, of he and his fellow POWs as they you know try and live through the terror and hell that is this uh, this this building of the railway, and then interspersed or somehow connected to the story of Dorigo Evans on as the POW is some sort of a, a love story, <clears throat> an affair that he has with his uncle's wife. So the picture that I had of this book before I started reading it was um, bridge over the River Kwai. Um, from Here to Eternity, although I confess I've neither read the book nor seen the movie From Here to Eternity, but you know we've all seen the iconic scene in the film where Charlton Heston and whatever the woman's name is, I don't remember who the actress was, are making out on the beach and the waves are crashing all around them. So I know it takes place during World War II, so I figured it had to be something similar to, at least akin to, um, the affair storyline that takes place in The Narrow Road to the Deep North. Now, this is a book that is truly, truly uh, much more intellectual than I am. The name of the book itself, by the way, is some sort of reference to a Japanese travel memo or travel log or whatever it is. And there's frequent references to haikus and um, I think there's there's a lot of I think the main character Dorigo is a scholar or at least an, has an interest in um, Greek mythology or Greek theorists of Aristotle or Socrates Plato whatever it is and so there's a lot of that type of language which you can tell the the, the author Richard Flanagan truly did his research or maybe he already knew this stuff that he was able to to deftly weave and intersperse it into the story of the characters but. It wasn't in any way a quick read. There's no dialogue. There is dialogue, but there's no dialogue. And when I say that, <clears throat> the dialogue is basically just part of the recitation of the events. There is no quotations. There's no breaking up of paragraphs in, in large part to um, address the issue of dialogue or anything like that. So it really does require a whole lot of focus and attention. And I found myself at times with my w mind wandering where I really had to snap back to it and focus really closely on the writing because there's a lot of um, thought that went into every word. There's a lot of um, deep meaning in a lot of it, if not all of it. And um, it was this, it was this that kind of initially turned me off to the book. I got about 40 pages into the, the book, and I was pretty much ready to put it down and not read anymore. Um, I was having a hard time understanding what was going on. The book seemed to jump back and forth a lot within that, that those first 40 pages between um, present day, where Dorigo Evans is an old man who seems to have had many uh, affairs and was in the midst of an affair, if not multiple affairs, even at that time. It goes back to before the war, when Dorigo Evans was a kid, uh, interactions he had with his brother, and I think his parents, or his mother, I don't remember which. And so it bounced and bounced and bounced and bounced, all within the first 40 pages. And within the first 40 pages, you get a very good idea of how much of a challenge it will be to read this book. And so after 40 pages, even though I expected that it wasn't going to be, a very quick and light read, I still was nervous that I wouldn't have the fortitude or the focus to really get through the book and grasp as much of it as, as I thought would be necessary. But I figured I'd spent 25, book, uh, 25 bucks on the book, 
I couldn't just give it up after 50 or 40 pages. And so I decided I was going to at least get to, to 100 and see, uh, and see how it worked out. Now, again, I was already a little bit suspicious about the book, suspicious about not the book itself, but about how I would take to the book because of the um, glorious praise that it's already received. I know that the people who judge these huge book prizes, they're not giving awards to books that are straightforward and real simple. We know that. They're giving awards out to books that are groundbreaking, that are challenging, that are intellectual. Um, You know, they're not giving out these awards to step by step by step by step by step. So I knew that I was already going in with this preconceived expectation that it was going to be, if not over my head, it was just going to be an experience that I wasn't going to have a, a pleasant time with. I mean, the only book award or the only books I've ever read that have won awards are typically books that have won mystery awards, whether they be Edgar Awards or Mystery Writers of America Awards or whatever it is. In fact, I'm, I'm reading a book right now, which is a finalist for an Edgar Award. Um, so those are, you know, I, I know that the the mystery and thriller genre doesn't take itself quite as seriously as the Man Booker Prize or, you know, Pulitzer Prize or whatever it is. And usually those books that win those awards are books that I've never heard of because they aren't commercially successful. The mass population doesn't want to read these types of books, nor do they have the patience or concentration to read the book and get enough out of it. But I decided I was going to persevere through, I was going to focus on it, and I was going to push through. And it it took me a good week and a half to read, because it's not a book that you can just pick up and read a couple pages at a time. You really have to get yourself ready for it. You have to to understand that it's going to be a challenge, that you're going to have to focus, that you're going to have to read every word and really understand and process it, because it builds and builds and builds, each each sentence builds to the next one. I, I, incidentally, after um, after I read the book and finished it, I, I went and listened to a podcast, and I was amazed at how critical the, the, the readers or whoever, you know, the, the people who were probably just like me, um, what they thought of this book, how critical they were of the book, how they criticized the writing, how they criticized the love story, how they criticized the the ending, how they criticized the characterization of the women. It was truly bizarre that this book that had won so many awards and was um, so highly regarded would be torn apart in the way that it was by by these people. And the podcast I listened to, by the way, now that I recall more clearly, it wasn't just Joe Schmo, Rob Cohen off the street, um, you know, reading the book and giving an opinion. This this was the Scottish Book Trust. And, and for the most part, I'm a true Angliophile. I, I love all things um, UK, Britain. And yet when these Scottish readers um, and, and philosophers or scholars, whatever you want to call them, were talking about this book with their thick Scottish accents, all I could hear is that uh, it made them sound so stuck up. It was like you guys are taking this too seriously. You know, you're, you're not you're 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 not seeing the forest through the trees. You're you're overlooking what was the the major theme of the story. And and so to to give you an idea, here's the the brief synopsis of the story is in as linear a fashion as I can um, provide it to you. So Dorigo Evans is uh, uh, lives in Australia. I think it may be. I think it's Australia. I believe the author is from Tanzania. 
a Tasmania, um, but Dorigo is in Australia. And um, prior to World War II breaking out, he has a girlfriend. Her name is Ella, and they're very, very close. And then he gets called off to war. And, and Dorigo, by the way, happens to be a, a physician, a surgeon. And so when he's in the war, um, he is, he's a, a, you know, obviously a, a surgeon with the, the medical corps. Prior to his being shipped out, however, um, he has, you know, time where he's working in an office, he's working on a base someplace, um, and he is granted leave. He has an uncle who runs a hotel not too far away. So during the times when he's on leave, he goes and he visits his uncle. Um, one of the times prior to the visit of the uncle while he was on leave, he was just browsing through a bookstore and there was a large mass of other soldiers that were walking through town surrounding this, um, this woman. And all these soldiers were trying to get this woman's attention. And they were having a very poor time. She really wasn't giving any of them the time of day. And then she sees Dorigo, who's just standing in a bookstore looking at I think a book on philosophy or Greek mythology, whatever it was. And she decides to break away from the pack of, of her followers. And she goes and begins a conversation with Dorigo. And it's a very uncomfortable conversation for him. He's kind of not paying attention. He knows he's got his girlfriend, Ella, back at home. And he doesn't really take good care to track the conversation. It seems very um, surface and peripheral. Um, nothing really particularly deep, and he doesn't think anything else of it. Well, when he finally does get this leave and he goes to visit his uncle, he finds out that the woman that he had been talking to in the bookstore happens to be his uncle's wife, and her name is Amy. And there's a very significant um, age difference between um, Amy and and uh, her husband, Dorigo's uncle. So <clears throat> Amy is still about the same age as Dorigo, maybe a year or two older, if I recall correctly. And over the course of however long it is, they develop a very close relationship that turns into a love affair. And um, uh, ultimately, the love affair has to end because Dorigo has been called to basically be um, dispatched um, and off he goes to the war. Now, we don't hear anything, we don't learn anything about the uh, means by which Dorigo was imprisoned or captured as a POW, but there's a very long sequence during the, the book where we see the horrors and the atrocities of Dorigo and his fellow POWs while they are prisoners and while they are being tasked to build this, this railroad. Um, we learn a lot about each of the individual characters and soldiers that are not just soldiers, by the way, the soldiers and the the, um, the captors, the Japanese uh, troops who are um, you know running this this POW camp that's supposed to be building this railway, and we learn a lot of how the men were treated. We get the personalities of the characters as well as we get to see basically their ultimate demise, and, and so many of them end up uh, perishing at some point throughout their captivity. Um, the the beatings, the whippings, the beheadings. Um, the terrible, terrible conditions in which they are kept, whether it be because of poor shoes or um, early morning wake-ups and, and long marches and the physical torture. Um, you see that there's one character who thought that he was um, physically superior to everybody and he um, you know, utilized his strength to really be the, the consummate um, co builder of the railroad. And all it did was it forced the Japanese soldiers to be more brutal to everybody else because they figured if this one soldier could be um, productive and and strong in uh, what he was doing, then everybody else could be as well. 
and of course that character who was so strong and and um, uh, vigorous in his work ended up suffering a, a pretty horrific death as well. And so you see the way that Dorigo Evans himself is really broken down by everything he's seen and everything that he has to um, endure. Dorigo, by the way, ends up being the basically the highest ranking officer of all of the other POWs. And so he's the one that they all look to. And there's a very interesting scene where one of the um, chefs comes to Dorigo with a nice piece of steak, meat, prime rib, whatever it was. And he says, since you're in charge, we want you to have this. And he goes through this mental gymnastics of, you know, whether he should or should not actually eat the meat, because if he eats it, he's being the, um, the, the man in charge like everybody expects. But by eating it, he's now taking away from everybody else who could be sharing in with this meat. So Dorigo understands his position but not only does he have this position as the highest ranking officer, he's also the only surgeon. And so during the captivity, he has fashioned this makeshift um, hospital where he is taking care of the people who have um, whatever it is, malaria or dysentery. Um, he's performing surgery. He's performing amputations, um, all with makeshift uh, tools and makeshift antibiotics, not antibiotics, uh, um, anesthesia. And it's truly an interesting spectacle to watch of how Dorigo tries to balance the two responsibilities, the responsibility of identifying those those soldiers who every day are healthy enough to go work on the railroad and with trying to keep them all healthy, knowing that as soon as he gets them healthy, they're going to be the ones shipped off to work on the railroad and most likely will not come home. So all the while that he is enduring this atrocious, atrocious experience in the POW camp, he's pining for Amy. Uh, Ella, the relationship with Ella, with his, his girlfriend from back home, is really not, um, doesn't really come to his mind. It's Amy. It's the um, idealized relationship that he had with her, the, um, the perfect sequence of events and situations that allowed their relationship to occur. Um, and he focuses on that to the point where he can't even really remember what she looks like anymore. He can only remember certain instances and snippets of the the few weeks or however long it was that they got to spend together. But meanwhile, Amy is having her own troubles, um, which we know about, Dorigo does not know about, um, that his, uh, I'm sorry, that her, her husband has found out about the affair and is trying to get past it. Amy, by the way, when Dorigo um, was being shipped off, she told Dorigo, it's over. We're done. It, that's it. It can't continue. Um, you know, don't worry about me and certainly forget about me. It's it's not going to happen. And yet Dorigo still pines over her and still wonders what she meant by that because this all took place over a phone call. And so it was easily misinterpreted and he wasn't sure what she really meant. And he was thinking that he would, well, I, you know, he doesn't really say what he's thinking. Is he going to come back and try and find her or is he going to um, not, you know, because he's going to, to listen to and obey her instructions to never think of her again. And yet somewhere along this line, when they finally get some mail, Dorigo gets a piece of mail, which changes his outlook on this whole entire relationship. And the book jacket teases this. Um, the book jacket, which describes the story, doesn't give a whole lot of information. 
but it does say that he gets a letter which will change him forever. And so there's a point about halfway through the book where the mail comes and he uh, indicates that he had gotten this piece of mail um, and that he was so excited to read it, but he wanted to put it aside and read it later when he had the time. And then it kind of just glosses over the letter. So for the rest of the book, this is now probably another 100 pages, 150 pages, almost 200 pages later, where I'm still wondering whether we ever found out what the contents of the letter were. And I found myself going back to that passage multiple times just to try and see if I could divine whether he had informed what the contents of the letter were because the book jacket says, oh, the the letter and it's going to change him forever. And yet I couldn't put my finger specifically on what it was that the letter had said. And so as we're getting down to page 320, 325, 330, and we're really at the last couple pages of the book, the only thing I can figure is that we're finally going to find out on the last page of the book what that letter said. And of course, uh, that's the way it worked out. But this is a situation where I start to to, to uh, um, miss, uh, I start to doubt my own abilities of perception and comprehension because I'm already intimidated by the book. I've already been intimidated not only by the fact that it won this prize, but by the um, by the haikus and the the Greek theories and all the interspersed of of um, you know intellectual thought. And here I am saying, well, there, the book jacket said something about a letter, but I, I, God, for the life of me, I can't remember what that was. How did I miss it? What did I miss? Am I not reading English? Is this, you know, is there something I'm supposed to read between the lines? Um, so at least I was a, um, <laughs> a little bit gratified by the fact that we do actually find out the contents of the letter at the, uh, at the end of the book. Now, as I was listening to the... Um, the podcast from the Scottish Book Trust, they said so many things that I thought were hypercritical and and hypersensitive about the book that really bothered me. Because, again, this was a book that after 40 pages, I didn't want to read anymore. And yet, I pushed through it and felt that there was such a reward to it. Now, you do see two aspects of the story. You see not only the aspects of the POWs themselves, but you also see the aspect from the standpoint of the uh, the guards, the soldiers, because they had their own rules, they had their own instructions. Their instruction was to get this railway completed and to use whatever um, whatever means necessary to get that done. And they also come from a completely different culture, where their culture is, um, you know, if you can't succeed at something, you're going to kill yourself because it's your honor to get it concluded. And the leaders of the of the the camp who were you know tasked with the building of this railway were basically anticipating that they would have to take their own lives because this railway would would not be completed. And so after the war, and you see how <clears throat> you, you don't get a whole lot about how the war ended or how the camp was liberated or whatever method it was that the POWs went home. But you find out that the leaders of the camp, the Japanese soldiers, um, some of them were treated as um, as war criminal, uh, as war cri- uh, war criminals, and um, you know some of them were um, were executed, and some of them were on the run and and spent um, you know forty fifty years after the war trying to escape their past. Um, one of them who was particularly nasty and and devious. Um, ended up starting like a nonprofit, and he he hired one of the other soldiers to work for him. And you you have this duality of character where you've got the the nasty 
despicable atrocities that are committed by these soldiers, and then you see them as real people or post-war people who are trying to make their own life for themselves, are trying to, whether it is escape their own past demons, escape what they did in the past, or simply viewed what they did in the past as their duty and that was their job, and now they're back to um, you know, accomplishing whatever other goals they had. So it's an interesting, um, an interesting character study to look at the two sides of the characters. You look at basically how this experience in the POW camp, both for the soldiers and the guards, really changed them, um, completely changed them. The idea that, well, if they were the guards, then they were not under any particularly um, uh, terrible stress, there were no horrors or atrocities, and yet the psychological um, psychological damage that was done to these characters by virtue of the pressure they were under to accomplish this task certainly resulted in um, the changing of their of their lifelong perspectives on things. There was a, a very touching and sad, sad part where there was one um, one of the guards who um, was sort of like an enforcer, and he was the guy who was tasked with um, you know beating the the prisoners. And there's a particularly graphic part of the book where um, the beating of one of the soldiers is seems to go on forever and ever and ever. And and it truly did. Um, as you read the book, realize it took it was hours of just beating this guy, beating him and beating him and beating him. And this is the soldier who was tasked with doing that, who was just doing his job. Um, he he tells that he had joined up because he was supposed to get money. You know, it was it was for paid money to get sent home to his family. That's why he enlisted in the in the army was to you know earn a living and and have money to send home to his family. And here he is, after having been convicted of the war crimes and being sentenced to death, sitting in his jail and asking, well, what happened to the money? You know, I was supposed to make money. I was supposed to make whatever it was, $30 a month or something like that. Um, and and I, I did what I was supposed to do. I performed like I was supposed to perform. I did what I was told to do, and I was supposed to get paid. So where's my money? And it even follows the same um, the same thought process all the way through to the moment where he is just about, you know, with the noose around his neck. And uh, um, it's it's kind of a real touching and sad ending to this guy and the way that, that his, his story ends um, with this thought on his mind of, but where's my money? Uh, you know, I, I did what I was supposed to do. Where's my $30? Um, and so it's not you don't see a lot of books that take it from those two opposing perspectives. It's always easy to make the bad guys bad and the good guys good. And it's clearly defined in the book who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And during the period in which the description of the POW camp is, you know, goes into such detail, you understand who the good guys are and the bad guys are. And yet after the war, as you see, how the quote-unquote bad guys end up having to um, survive or escape uh, prosecution for war crimes or even are convicted of war crimes, you see that, well, you know, yeah, they were bad guys, but they were bad guys because that was what they were instructed to do. And I'm not saying that anything that happens in war is excusable because of the, um, because of the, the you know, the, the art of war. 
um, you know, certainly the the Nazis and the people who took such pride in in executing Jews in the concentration camps, they were war criminals, but they were war criminals to the extent that they were the leaders. They were the ones who were crafting the final solution. They were the ones who were making the instructions and and creating the methods. Um, but the the little foot soldier who's just doing what he's told and if he decides he's going to refuse an order, he's going to be executed. Um, you know, I don't know how you define that person as as a war criminal. I just, I just don't. You know, so much of this book is about how we deal with difficult situations, or how people deal with di- difficult situations, how they retreat into their minds and concentrate on other things to avoid the emotional scarring that will happen if they pay too close attention to the atrocities that are being visited upon them during this um, terrible, savage beating of of one of the soldiers, we f- see that some of the other soldiers who are standing in line witnessing this beating are retreating into themselves. They are thinking of other things. They are they are looking around, or they are looking inside themselves, thinking of anything they can just to 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 distance themselves from what they are witnessing because they know that there's going to be um you know lifelong uh, um, damage that is done because of what they're witnessing and i'm sure they also knew that at any given time that might be them or that the person who's getting beaten could have been any one of them and they don't want to face up to the fact that they were just lucky that that wasn't them um getting the shit kicked out of them and they don't want to admit the fact of that luck. Um, the Scottish Trust guys uh, really were critical of the women. Um, a- after the war and after Dorigo Evans um, gets home, he ends up marrying Ella, has a series over the course of decades, um, affairs and relationships, and he really treats Ella quite poorly. And she always supports him. She always sticks by, sticks by him. Um, he becomes a, a, a nationwide, if not um, universal, celebrity uh, because of what he went through. And he's this well-established surgeon, um, becomes this, this war hero that everybody is giving awards to. Um, and she sticks by him the whole time, even know, knowing um, how flawed he is and how um, damaged he is and really the way that he's treating her. And so the book trust people really kind of honed in on the portrayal of the women. Um, they didn't particularly like Amy very much. Um, they liked Ella, but they couldn't really understand her very much. And they really had this difficult time understanding what uh, Dorigo was so infatuated with Amy about and why the, why the connection, I guess. They, they couldn't really grasp where the two of them fit in. And... I just, I, it kind of didn't make any sense to me how they didn't see it. Uh, it, it, it was so obvious to me, um, and I couldn't figure out. I found myself yelling at the radio or yelling at my iPod um, as to why they weren't getting this. I mean, you have to understand the relationship between Dorigo and Amy happened while Dorigo knew that at any given point he was going to be shipped off to war, and this was his relationship with Amy was idealized it was perfect it was it was at a place and a time and with somebody where it was for lack of a better word perfect um 
you know, we, we have a sense of, of idealizing situations where we remember being happy. Um, we idealize relationships with people because of the way they made us feel. And Dorigo truly felt this connection with Amy because of the time and the location and the circumstances. He didn't feel that connection with Amy when he first met her in the bookstore. It was only after he realized he was going to be shipped out. Here we are, and the hotel was on this beach. So you've got a beautiful setting. You have this beautiful hotel. You can go on the beach and make love, and you can drink all you want, and you're as far away from the war as possible. Why wouldn't anybody view that as as perfect, as idealized? And we, we have this idea that when we've established this idyllic situation of events, we feel as if once the bad stuff is over, we can go back to that. And during the time that Dorigo was as POW, he envisioned that he would be able to go back to that. He didn't know what he was going to do about Ella. He didn't know what he was going to do about anything else. All he knew was he would go back to that idyllic time and place and everything would be perfect. But we all know that's not the case. We all know that it takes a certain sequence of events and situations which create this idyllic, this paradise. But once the war's over and back to real life, Dorigo wasn't going to be the same and neither was Amy. You know, you play it out. Dorigo's now not in the war anymore. He's got to get a job. He's got to fend for himself. He's got to earn a living. He's got to, you know, and the, the, the vagaries and the stresses and the tumult of day-to-day -day life are going to infect themselves in the relationship that Amy and Dorigo have. And Dorigo didn't want to realize that. And the book trust people didn't seem to grasp that. They didn't seem to grasp that this was paradise because of how far away from the war it was and because of the fact that there were no responsibilities. Dorigo didn't need to work. He had a job. It was on the base. Amy didn't need to work. She had a job working in the hotel. They didn't have to pay rent because Dorigo's or, uh, Amy's husband owned the hotel. They didn't. None of the stuff that creates that creates stress and strife in a relationship attached to day-to-day -day life didn't find themselves in the relationship between Dorigo and Amy. And that's why he was so clinging to that snippet of his time. He knew that as soon as the war was over, if he went back to Ella, life would be different. It wouldn't be idealized. It wouldn't be paradise. It wouldn't be... Um, you know, stress-free. It was going to be real life. And uh, he he was clinging to the hope that he could go back and, and sweep Amy back off her feet until he gets this letter. And then the whole perspective on the rest of his life changes. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the tragedy of the letter was. I don't want to discuss too much about how that did affect him. But when he got that letter, it, it really generated a change in him. It generated this change where... The rest of his life, as far as he could perceive, would be aimless. It would be without purpose. His his purpose of getting out of the POW camp was to go get Amy. And after he gets this letter, his whole perspective on that changed. And I think it changed the whole course of the rest of his life. This idea of him being a womanizer and not being able to find, um, you know, not being able to find what he was satisfied with was a direct, direct result 
of the relationship with Amy. The reason why people have affairs is because it's a way to get away from the stress and tumult of day-to-day life and experience something which is stress-free. It is strictly for the purpose of fun or some sort of a physical connection that you're not getting. There, there's an I, I, there's a, a paradise quality to an affair because it's outside the realm of your day-to-day life. And I think that Dorigo, who saw that the rest of his life was going to be fraught with this day-to-day stress and the relationship with Ella, which Ella wasn't, as far as he was concerned, his soulmate. Ella was not the one he was supposed to be with for the rest of his life. He was settling for Ella because there would be no more relationship with Amy. He had to have these affairs in order to experience those brief snippets of quote-unquote paradise, those brief snippets of stress-free, those brief snippets of, of freedom to not worry about repercussions, not worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, not worry about paying rent or working or what are the kids doing. And the book trust people couldn't figure out. They didn't get the the womanizing constant affairs. They they felt it was overkill. They felt it was too much. They felt it didn't add anything. And I'm, you know, I'm not much of a scholar. I don't pride myself on having such a deep intellect into literature. But again, I found myself screaming at the radio going, what are you guys missing? How did you not get this? This is why he's doing this. You guys are so critical of Amy and you're claiming that she was, she was uh, you know, uh, not a character that you could perceive Dorigo loving. It wasn't that he loved her. He loved the thought of her. He loved the thought of the relationship that he had with her. He loved the idea that she lived at this hotel that was on the beach. And they could drink what they wanted, and they could go and have sex whenever they wanted, and it was free, and they were so far away from the war. And how many people do you think during any type of war have these type of experiences where it's like, I just want to survive this war so I could go back to that? And a lot of them think when they come back, it will be that way. And yet you hear so many stories of of wives who or, or girlfriends who get married, have kids, they can't wait, and the the paradise the 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 visual of this paradise is shattered when they come home and it completely destroys them and i didn't understand why the book trust people didn't see that one of the uh guys who was on this book trust panel was talking about the man booker prize and he actually had been one of the judges of the man booker prize the year before and he was talking about the kind of the the process of of awarding the prize and what they looked for and what the the readers were looking for and how they analyzed these books. And he was basically going through this discussion to explain why he wouldn't have given this book that prize. And he talked about how at the end of the day, by the time the Man Booker Prize is awarded, they've read the books about three times each, each of the finalists. And that the sign of a good book is that as soon as you finish reading it, you want to start it up again, and you want to read through it again. And personally, I, I find that to be un, unusual. I, I, I can't put my finger on it. It doesn't make sense to me. Because I would figure that a book can only... Well, let me take this back. I may be wrong. I don't read books more than once. And I can't perceive of myself reading this book again. I finished this book and I said, I'm glad I read it. I don't need to read it again. 
I, I got what I needed out of it, and I, I felt as if it had impacted me. Did I want to read it again? No. Can I envision myself reading it two, three more times? No. But does that mean it's not a good book? No, because I don't reread books at all. I get the experience. I don't need to reread books in order to delve deeper. I don't need to reread books in order to pick up on nuances. Because to me, I'm, I'm not that intellectual of a reader. I can understand studying a book for the purpose of um, you know, teaching or literary theory. But that's not why I read books. Um, and so I didn't quite agree with the um, perception of this gentleman who claimed that this book wouldn't have wouldn't have been his choice because he you know didn't feel the need to read it two more times or whatever it was. But anyways, I'm glad I read it. I, I didn't think I was going to like it. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect. <clears throat> it was a lot of Bridge on the River Kwai, which I, I read a long, long time ago, From Here to Eternity, which I hadn't read, and um, The Naked and the Dead by uh, by Norman Mailer. There's a, a scene in The Naked from the Dead, which if you haven't read, I, I truly recommend it, um, where there's a character, and I don't remember his name, but I think he was a, a Jewish um, soldier, and um, Naked and the Dead, by the way, takes place in World War II in, um, in the Pacific Marines. And... Um, this this particular soldier was generally pretty weak, um, and throughout the book he is picked on and he he's um, singled out as being a truly weak link. And there's a, a part where they're climbing to get to some destination I don't remember what it was, and there's a <clears throat> they're on an island and they're trying to get across a a gorge in the mountains or something like that. And um, and all I can remember is that this one weak link character who tried to make this jump and didn't make it. And there were a lot of characters in the narrow road to the deep north that kind of resonated with me on that same level, that these were just regular people. Um, they were, you know, guys, you and me, whatever it was, who were thrust into such a, a difficult and unseemly and, and horrendous and horrific situation. And... Um, to see how they persevered and see how some of them survived and some of them did, didn't. And the randomness of it all um, was, uh, um, you know, kind of kind of difficult to read um, and, and tough and sad. Um, and so it was, it was an, interesting, an interesting book. Um, I, I would recommend it, if, but you got to be willing to put in the time. You got to be willing to really focus on that. You got to be willing to go through the experience of of the the journey because it really is a journey even though it's only uh, you know 330 pages long so last week on uh, Facebook Michael Connolly's Facebook page he put a uh, a post out if anybody is interested in if anybody's gonna be in the LA area and wants to go to the premiere of the Amazon Prime series Bosch a direct message and get an invitation first 75 people get an invite so I, of course, sent my uh, my direct message, got the invite, and uh, my wife and I went to the premiere Tuesday night. And it was really a, a cool, cool event. We had no idea what to expect. We had assigned seats, and uh, Amy and I were sitting in the very front row in the front center trying to figure out how this happened. And then we realized, you know, front row is probably not the best seats. And it was this huge um, movie theater, the Cinerama Dome, which has been around forever, and it's got this curved screen in front and a rounded you know, domed roof. Um, and it was 
truly the the cast and crew screening of the first two episodes of of the tv series bosch and you know because i've spoken about it before that uh michael Connolly is my favorite author of all time and harry bosch is my favorite character and i had seen the pilot episode that they had run last year sometime when they were interested in in creating the series so if you're not uh familiar last year amazon made uh pilot episodes of a few different shows, five or six different shows. And they aired them all online, and they asked for viewers to vote which ones that they would want to be developed into full, uh, full-length full series. And Bosch was one of them, and Bosch got the 13-episode uh, the green light. So right then and there, the idea of, of Harry Bosch, this um, storied and favorite character of mine, to come to, to the screen um, was kind of a... a a, a tenuous feeling for me with opt with excitement and with with um, sadness um the casting of titus welliver as as bosch was something i wasn't too keen on i didn't know what to think and i really just as a whole wasn't sure how i felt about this character who i've grown to to be so connected to to be shared with the entire world um so i wasn't sure i i, I liked the idea i i I certainly um, enjoy the idea of seeing the characters and the storylines on screen, but you you get developed this idea in your head of what the characters are like, or what the scenarios look like, or what the scenes look like, and there's something comforting in knowing that you're the only one that has to have that because it's all in your own head. You're not sharing that with anybody else, and everybody else, by the way, has their own. Um, impressions of that they they interpret things their own way but nevertheless i mean the idea of of harry bosch being on screen was something so exciting so we went to the the premiere and they showed the first two episodes of the series and the series all 13 episodes are going to be released this coming friday february the 13th so you can stream them all and my wife and i are already planning for um friday night and saturday valentine's day to uh to binge watch all of the episodes because we're so excited um and prior to the airing of the the first two episodes at the screening um michael Connolly spoke and he talked about how he was nervous because he had been you know harry bosch's father for 25 years and had been so close to harry that now he was you know sharing harry with the world um, and, and I agree with him. I agree with him. I know I'm not the only person that reads um, Michael Connolly, and I know that he's a multi-multi-million bookseller. Um, and yet, <clears throat> I always felt as if he was mine. And it's bizarre. I get it. Um, but I've been reading um, Harry Bosch for 20 years. Um, you know, every year, like clockwork, when the books come out, it's the first, you know, I'm, I'm at the bookstore first day, and I've read it within the first three days, uh, you know, and, and I'm ready for the next one, waiting for it. And, um, you know, for it, for no reason that makes any rational sense, I don't like posers. You know, I don't like people who say, oh, I, you know, I love Harry Bosch books, and you've read like three of them. No, you love Harry Bosch books when you've read all of them from the beginning all the way forward, you know, in chronological order, and you followed Harry from his progression as a, you know, homicide detective, through his marriage, through his divorce, through the birth of his daughter, through all of his relationships, through his retirement, through his, his reinstatement. I mean, you, you, you have to, you, you, you know, 
for lack of a better word, Harry Bosch to me is a kid who's 20 years old because I've been with him since infancy. And the idea that he's now going to be released onto the world and there's now going to be all these people who are going to claim that they love Harry Bosch or they love the show or whatever it is and they're now experts in the canon. It's like, you know, it's tough. It's tough. I feel like a a personal attachment. I feel like he's mine, you know, and um, it's not reasonable. It's not rational. I get it. Um, but that's kind of how I feel. And so when I when I, I mentioned to a lot of people, I obviously post on Facebook that I was at the screening and stuff and people saying, oh, you know, uh, um, I, I love the books and I'm reading this one now. I'm reading that one now. It's like, oh, hey, Kate, yeah, that's great. You know, you like the books, but you're not me. You know, you're not as devoted to the books like I am. You're not as devoted to the character. You're not as as um, connected to the character. Um, during the, the first episode, there's a scene where um, Harry Bosch is, is on trial and he's testifying. And the, um, the plaintiff's attorney is asking him some questions and finally gets to the root of uh, Harry's childhood. And Ch- Harry has to admit that his mother was a prostitute who had been murdered. And when we're watching that in the in the movie theater, and and you can hear because we were in the front row, we could hear all of the gasps of surprise, all of these guys. Oh my gosh, Harry Bosch! You know his mother was a prostitute, was murdered, and he was an orphan. It's like, you know, I kind of wanted to turn around, stand up, and turn around, and go, "What the fuck, man? How could you guys know this?" I mean, this is Harry Bosch we're talking about, okay? This is the the homicide detective who you know, stereotypical maybe who bucks against you know his superiors but always is in you know in favor of the right and and always gets his man i mean this isn't just you know whatever pick a character this isn't mike hammer you know this isn't uh, perry mason okay those were fluff those were you know paperback novels they were dime store books they were whatever it is whatever the you know pulp fiction kind of a thing you know, this is Harry Bosch. There's more to Harry Bosch than just solving the crime. You know, Harry Bosch is his, his, when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back into you and everyone counts or nobody counts. I mean, this is not just the police officer who gets up, solves this crime and then goes to bed. And when you've been through, um, and I think after the 25 years that, that Michael Connelly has been writing the books, there have been, I think he mentioned 19 Harry Bosch novels when you and then you add in the, the Mickey Howler Lincoln Lawyer books and, and three or four standalone novels, which I've also all read. Um, but this is a 19-year or 19-book progression of, of Harry Bosch, this, this Vietnam vet, this tunnel rat, this, this man who faces his own demons and has this, um, this, this focus on no matter who the victim is solving the crime because everybody counts or nobody counts. You can't develop that type of a connection. You can't develop that type of a affinity for a character simply by watching 13 episodes of a television show. You know, it's good. The TV shows are good. But you don't get the connection to Harry Bosch. You don't get the intent, the internal struggle that he goes through. You don't get where his darkness, his brooding, his chip on his shoulder comes from. And so part of the reason why I'm, I'm a little um, nervous about the show or I'm, I'm concerned about the attention that the show will get or all of these new, all of these new um, 
viewers, all of these new people to the character, they're going to watch these 13 episodes and they're going to think they're, a bo- they're an expert on Harry Bosch. They're going to think, I've, I watched those 13 episodes and I know who Harry Bosch is. And you know what? Even though the, the, the show is, it, the, the, even though Michael Connolly is involved in the show, even though he wrote the pilot, even though he handpicked Titus Welliver, even though he's been involved as an executive producer the whole way through, and even though he gives the show his blessing, even he has to understand that there are some aspects of Harry Bosch that just will not translate to the screen. There's the 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 internal stuff. There's the psychological stuff. And yes, Titus Welliver does a fantastic job. Titus Welliver is Harry Bosch. I'm not going to disagree with that. I can see it. I I have no problem seeing him as Harry Bosch. And and he has this edge. He has this darkness to him. He's not None of the characters he's ever played um, throughout his career have been the comedic guy, the the foil or the comedy comic relief. He's always been the dark character, whether it be on Brooklyn South or um, Chiefs, if you can go back far enough and remember. I think that was what it was called. Um, or, or even Gone Baby Gone or some of the other movies he's been. He's never the comic. He's always the dark brooding. And you get that from his portrayal. But you're never going to get inside his head. You're never going to get the deep, deep insight that you get from reading the novels. And so I think that's where my big hesitation comes from about the TV show. It's this idea that you're going to get all these brand new fans to Harry Bosch. But they're going to be fans of the show. They're not going to be fans of the books. And if they are fans of the books, you know, maybe they're going to pick up a book. Maybe they're going to pick up book six or book nine or whatever it is, the books that that the series is based on. They're not going to start at the beginning and go through the journey. They're not going to go from the Black Echo with Harry Bosch uh, investigating the murder of a fellow Vietnam vet. You're not going to go through The Last Coyote where you experience Harry Bosch solving the murder of his prostitute mother. You're not going to go through uh, A Darkness More Than Night and watch his interaction with Terry McCaleb from Bloodwork, where I think that was where the, if you stare into the abyss, the abyss, the abyss stares back into you. I think that's where that came from. You're not going to get that. And so you're going to have a whole lot of superficial fans. And that's great. Look, I want Michael Connolly to succeed, and I want the Harry Bosch books to continue. Damn it, I don't want people just picking up the latest book and saying, oh man, I'm a huge Harry Bosch fan. No, you're not. You got to start from the beginning. You got to experience it. It's not like, um, you know, it's not like a, 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 a Hercule Poirot, Agatha Christie mystery where you can just pick up any of the books and you don't miss anything. Okay? Each of the Harry Bosch books is its own story. And yes, you can read them independent of each other. But if you read them from beginning to end, you get the more clearer picture of who Harry Bosch is. You see deeper into who he is. That by the time you get to the last book, the most recent book, The Burning Room, and you see everything that he goes through, and you, you see how the book ends. You see, I mean, give me a break. In The Burning Room, there's there's a, you know, uh, Harry is inspect- obviously investigating murder, and there's a... Uh, um, 
a politician, a local politician, and this just disturbed the crap out of me, this local politician, and he hears somebody, I think it's uh, Harry's chief, who says to Harry at one point, isn't it something you always say, everyone counts or nobody counts? And this politician starts using that as his slogan as he's running for mayor. And if you just picked up that book and you haven't read any others, it doesn't mean anything to you. Okay. But if you've been reading since day one, if you've been following Harry from the Black Echo all the way up through, and then you see this, you see this politician, this greasy, slick politician who's campaigning for mayor, and he starts using Harry's tag, and he says, everyone counts or no one counts, it makes you want to throw up. And that's something that you're not going to get from the TV show. And so I am a little hesitant about the show. I'm a little bit nervous because I, I just... I just kind of feel like he's mine, you know, it's for whatever it means and however lame that may sound, you know, he's mine. I've been, I'm 39 years old. I've been reading him longer than I've been married. I've been reading him longer than I've been an attorney. I've been, you know, Harry Bosch has been a part of my life since basically when I started college. And I don't want to share him unless I'm sharing him with people who truly, truly get it. And I'm interested to see how the rest of the 13 episodes work and plan out because I hope that it does more. I hope that it does enough to give the new fans some insight into why us real loyal fans are so connected to him. Now, I'm going to tell you that with the casting of Titus Welliver as Harry Bosch, we do have a break in the time-space continuum. And I'm not sure if Michael Connolly is even aware of it. And if he's listening, I'm just going to say it. Um, but you got a problem here. And here's where the problem is. Call it a little six degrees of Kevin Bacon type thing. So Harry Bosch is played by Titus Welliver. Titus Welliver was in a movie called Gone Baby Gone with Casey Affleck. Gone Baby Gone was based on the books by Dennis Lehane. The books, the book Gone Baby Gone, was the fourth book in the Kenzie and Gennaro series. That's um, Angie Gennaro and Patrick Kenzie. And in the movie Gone Baby Gone, Casey Affleck played um, Patrick Kenzie. And Titus Welliver, by the way, played the father of, uh, was he the father of the girl who had been kidnapped or the... Um, the mother, the boyfriend of the mother of the girl who had been kidnapped, whatever it was. So you say, okay, great. So Titus Welliver has now played a character in two different series of books. He plays in this Gone Baby Gone, the Kenzie Gennaro books, and now he's playing Harry Bosch. But, but, there was a crossover. And unless you've been paying attention over the last year, and if you've been listening to me, you probably already know this, that in the anthology Face Off, which came out last year, the very first short story in the Face Off anthology was a crossover written by Michael Connolly and Dennis Lehane, and it involved the characters of Harry Bosch and Patrick Kenzie. So now, the two worlds, the two worlds that the characters reside in, the Harry Bosch world of Michael Connolly 
and the Patrick Kenzie world of Dennis Lehane have now been connected. So how is it possible that Titus Welliver, who played a character in a Patrick Kenzie novel, can now play a character in a Harry Bosch novel? I ask you that. It is a breach in the time-space continuum. I don't know. I just thought it was funny. It's one of the things I think of. You know, maybe maybe you don't think of it, but it certainly sounds interesting to me. But look, I, I'm not going to say get rid of Titus Welliver because um, I thought he did a really good job. And I thought, by the way, if you're going to watch these, the second episode was a lot better than the first. Um, it really starts to hit its stride. And I'm really, really interested in seeing the uh, the other 11 episodes. Um, incidentally, after the, the screening of the two episodes, um, because we had been invited to attend the premiere as Michael Connolly's fans through this Facebook thing, we also got to be invited to the after party. And, I mean, that's where you're, you're rubbing, you know, rubbing elbows with everybody. Titus Welliver and Michael Connolly was there and the rest of the cast. Um, so it was a really, really cool event. And, and I really thank Michael Connolly for giving that opportunity to his fans because I think I've met Michael Connolly um, a few times now. I met him at the uh, L.A. County, uh, L.A. Times Festival of Books. Uh, my brother reminded me that he and I actually went to a book signing of his at the Barnes & Noble in Encino, which isn't there anymore, um, probably 10, 12, 15 years ago. And then Amy and I met him again at the uh, Thriller Fest in New York in July. And I think he really does understand how important his readers are. Um just by comparison, um, when when I met Michael Connolly again at Thriller Fest, um, I told him, I said, it's not an understatement for me to say that you are my favorite author. And, uh, and he said, thank you. He says, you know, I never get tired of hearing that. Um, and I think he meant it. I think he did. Um, and by comparison, I met Lee Child, um, who is the author of the Jack Reacher series. And I told him how much I enjoyed his books and how much, um, how, how for, for Jack Reacher, I was late to the game, so to speak. And so I was able to binge read and I was able to read, you know, basically, I, I think I read 15 books within um, the course of a year or two in order to catch up. And um, it didn't seem to really bother him, didn't seem to care, he didn't say thank you, he didn't say anything. Um, so I think that, again, is another reason why another just another aspect of the reader-author relationship that I have with, um, with Harry Bosch. And, and, and I don't, by the way, have that same relationship with, with Mickey Haller. I didn't have that thought or, or feeling when I saw The Lincoln Lawyer. I thought it was a good movie. Um, but I didn't have that same connection. It's Harry Bosch. That's, that's the one. That's my, um, you know, that's my Sherlock Holmes that's my Hercule Poirot. That's my Dracula. That's my, you know, whatever it is. That's my Jane Eyre. All literary scholars, all all serious serious readers have a character or a of a series of or a series of books that they focus on or that they uh, claim has um, specific significance or particular impact, or resonance. And um, yeah, you know what? I read all of Jonathan Kellerman's books, and I love the character of Alex Delaware. He's not Harry Bosch. I read so many, uh, you know, David Baldacci books. None of those characters 
or Harry Bosch. I'm a huge fan of Peter James and the Roy Grace books. And Roy Grace is getting close to being Harry Bosch, but he's not. My relationship with Roy Grace is over the past six, seven months. My relationship with Harry Bosch is longer than just about any other relationship I have. Um, and so I'm protective of that. Sue me. What can I tell you? Uh, but I'm interested in your thoughts. I, I'm interested in hearing, am I wrong? You know, read, uh, 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 watch the TV show. Tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if you get it. Tell me what you get. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I really, truly would. Find me on Twitter at BookTherapy13. Find me on my blog at RobCohen13.com. I have another Twitter, RobCohen13. Um, BookTherapy13 at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Find me. Um, this was a, a particularly difficult episode for me because <laughs> the, the, you know, the emotional drain of the narrow road to the deep north coupled with the um, psychological destruction <laughs> with respect to the the tv series bosch um so thank you as always for letting me lie on your couch <laughs>